Please keep your Bibles and turn with me to Ezekiel 22. The title of the message is a question. What does it mean to stand in the gap? I'll give you just a moment to think about that as we begin this evening. What does it mean to stand in the gap? We memorized in November these verses that we will be reviewing this week since it's our review month. Ezekiel 22, 29, 30. Verse 30 says, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. We see biblical accounts of men who willingly stood in the gap. Literally, God is here and the people are here and there's a breach between them. And there was a man who did what was necessary to stand in that breach between God and the people. To intercede between God and the people. This topic is very near and dear to my heart. Ezekiel has always been a special book to me. And as I was growing in the Lord greatly, Several years ago, around the same time the Lord called me to ministry, Ezekiel 22.30 was a very important verse to me. And so it's very exciting to be able to preach this message this evening. What does it mean to stand in the gap? But it's also a difficult message because once again, we're going to see that a big part of the problem was the spiritual leaders of the land. There's a big problem in today's church as well. And I would say the biggest part of the problem is today's church is concerned are the spiritual leaders of the land. And yet, as we all stand before God as priests as that holy nation, those peculiar people, we have the privilege of being different. Standing in the gap. Helping some folks who maybe are distanced from the Lord, whether believer or unbeliever, be reconciled to Him. And we're going to talk about what that means as we get started this evening. Look with me in Ezekiel 22 if you would. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Now thou son of man, wilt thou judge? Wilt thou judge the bloody city? Yea, thou shalt show her all her abominations. Then say thou, Thus saith the Lord God, The city sheddeth blood in the midst of it, that her time may come. And maketh idols against herself to defile herself. Thou art become blo uh, guilty in thy blood that thou hast shed. 
and hast defiled thyself in thine idols which thou hast made, and thou hast caused thy days to draw near. Thou art come even unto thy years. Therefore have I made thee a reproach unto the heathen and a mocking to all countries. Chapters 22 and 23 of the book of Ezekiel form a biblical judgment of the sins of the city of Jerusalem. In chapter 22, verse 2, we specifically see two sins mentioned. God calls them a bloody city, and He calls them an abominable city. Bloody and abominable. The idea here being bloody that many of the innocent have been slain, particularly young children, through being sacrificed to the false god Molech. And the abominations of the city being their idols that they have erected in their hearts, in their homes, and even the temple as we saw from earlier in Ezekiel. The idols being erected in their hearts and in their city. These sins are enumerated. They are, they are um, continue to be described in verse 3. They are a bloody city because the city is full of murder of the innocent. They are an abominable city because the city is full of defiling idolatry. And God's promise to the city in response to their sin, verses 4 and 5, that they will become a mockery. He says, I made thee a reproach unto the heathen. It is as if everything that touches this city becomes corrupted by the sin within it. And so the city itself will become a mockery to all those around them. In verses 6 through 12, we'll read them in just a moment, I'd like you to notice that we're going to see two words repeated several times. And the two words that we'll see repeated are the words, in thee. The city will be the foundation for many evils. And those are the evils that God's going to enumerate in verses 6 through 12. Let's look at it together. He says, chapter 22, beginning in verse 6, Behold, the princes of Israel, every one were in thee to their power to shed blood. Verse 7, In thee have they set light by father and mother in the midst of thee. Have they dealt by oppression with the stranger? In thee have they vexed the fatherless and the widow. So in them, the leaders shed blood. In them, father and mother are disobeyed. In them, strangers are oppressed. In them, verse 7, fatherless and widows are oppressed. Continuing in verse 8, Thou hast despised my holy things and has profaned my Sabbath. In them holy things are despised. Verses 10 and 11. Excuse me, 9 through 11. In thee are men that carry tales to shed blood, and in thee they eat up the mountains. In the midst of thee they commit lewdness. In thee have they discovered their father's nakedness. In thee have they humbled her that was set apart for pollution. And one hath committed abomination with his neighbor's wife, and another hath lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law, and another in thee hath humbled his sister, his father's daughter. Verse 12, In thee have they taken gifts to shed blood. Thou hast taken usury and increase, and thou hast greedily gained of thy neighbors by extortion. And notice the end there. And hast 
forgotten me, saith the Lord. We've talked some in the past several weeks about pride. Over the next many weeks, we'll be referencing pride many times again. And it always comes back to this idea of having forgotten God. It surrounds this idea that as we see sinfulness manifest itself in a life, as we see sinfulness manifest itself in a family, as we see sinfulness manifest itself in a church, as we see sinfulness manifest itself in a nation, you can mark it down, the words, and they have forgotten me, are somewhere in there. That somewhere, the fear of the Lord has fallen away from that nation, from that society, from that family, or from that person. Because the fear of the Lord is to hate evil in every evil way. And so as God is describing this nation, this nation that is guilty, guilty of innocent blood, this nation that is guilty of abominations, He says, in thee, all of these wicked things are happening. In thee, there's oppression. In thee, there's injustice. In thee, there's wickedness. And in verse 16, He tells them, Thou shalt take thine inheritance in thyself in the sight of the heathen, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. The promises of judgment are reiterated in verses 13 through 16. The scattering of the people, the destruction of the city, and God calls these things, the scattering, the destruction, all of these things, their inheritance. This is what you have earned for your actions. What happens? when the people who are chosen by God to be His representatives to the world fail in their purpose? What happens when a people having every advantage and the promise of every blessing still fall short of their responsibilities before God? Well, the answer is chastening. In love, God patiently draws His own back to Him. He does this through trials. He does this through tribulations. He does this through difficult circumstances. God has done this throughout history and God does it today as well. God does it in His children. When we as God's children are failing to accurately represent Him to the world, when we are failing in the task that God has given us to do, there's divine chastening back to Him. Just as with Israel. In verses 17 through 22, God promises this chastening to Israel. Again, I, I, I re remind you that we are seeing a lot of repetition here. This is happening over several years of time in Ezekiel's day. So the repetition that we're seeing week in and week out would not have been as repetitive. God is constantly reminding His nation of the judgment that is to come. And He's doing so because He's looking for them to repent. In verses 17 through 22, he tells them that he will gather them. Verse 17, excuse me, verse 18. He says, Son of man, the house of Israel is to me become dross. They are as brass and tin and iron and lead. In the midst of the furnace, they are even the dross of silver. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because ye are all become dross, behold, therefore, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem as they gather silver and brass and iron and lead and tin into the midst of the furnace to blow the fire upon it, to melt it, so I will gather you in mine anger and in my fury, and I will leave you there 
and melt you. So the, the picture is of metal, precious metals, or not so precious metals, that have become impure. When metals become impure, when there's a dross on them, the solution to getting that pure again is heat. If it's impure baked into the metal, you have to melt the metal down. And when you melt the metal down, all the scum will rise to the top and you sift it off. If it's just a dross on the outside, then as you put that precious metal in the fire, the dross will begin to bake off until it's all gone and there's nothing left but the metal itself. God says, see, you were beautiful. But you're not anymore. You've got a film on you. And it needs to be corrected. So I'm going to put you in the fire. I'm going to put you in the furnace. So that it will burn off the impurities that are around you. But you know, chastening is never God's perfect will. Nor is it even God's first recourse when His people turn from Him. Why would it have to happen? What were the circumstances that brought about God's chastening? Why were such dramatic measures necessary? What was it about Israel's circumstances and actions that brought about the end of the long-suffering of God? Look with me, beginning in verse 23. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto her, Thou art the land that is not cleansed, nor reigned upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many win widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and clean. And have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths. And I am profaned among them. Because the land had progressed to a point where those who claimed to represent God were the ones devouring souls and seeking money. They were charlatans. They refused to denounce sin. Verse 26 said they put no difference between the holy and the profane, between the clean and the unclean. And when you see a time where the spiritual representatives of God are no longer separating between the holy and the profane, are no longer separating between the clean and the unclean, you see a time where chastening is at hand. When in your own life you no longer see the difference between the holy and the profane. When in your family's life you no longer make distinctions between the clean and the unclean. When in a church's life there is no longer a distinction between the holy and the profane. When in a nation's life there is no longer a distinction between holy and profane. You can understand that chastening of God's people in that nation or of God's people in that church or of God's people in that family is just around the corner. These teachers called evil good and they called good evil. They confused rather than clarified. They weakened the distinctions of God's people rather than strengthening the distinctions of God's people. They built up false assurances of God's blessing while refusing to speak against the wickedness in the land. And it is within this context 
that we find verses 29 through 31. Look at them with me. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them and consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord. God looked in the midst of the profane prophets. He looked in the midst of the wicked people. He looked through the land to find that person, that one who would, through a life of righteous resolve, remind God of His mercy and appease His holy wrath. Do you know God searches for these types of people? God is looking for the one who will not bow down to the wickedness of the age around him. God is looking for that church that will not compromise itself to the world around it. And see, God is looking for that one because when he finds that one, he can justify his mercy. Second Chronicle chapter 16 teaches us of the days of Asa. King Asa was indeed a godly man. And God told King Asa this in, first, in Second Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward Him. God is scanning this earth He's going to and fro. Perhaps you could picture it like Ezekiel pictures the glory of God at the beginning of Ezekiel. That ball of fire, that orb that's running between the creatures, the seraphim, the cherry beam. That orb that is going from place to place and it has eyes all around it. Because the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. And because the eyes of the Lord are running to and fro throughout the whole earth, and they're looking for the one. They're looking for the one whose heart is perfect toward Him. They're, lo- they're not looking for the perfect man. They're not looking for the sinless man. They're looking for the man whose heart says, Here am I. Send me. They're looking for the woman who says, God, what would you have me to do with my life? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to add? What do you want me to take away? Where do you want me to go? How do you want me to serve? What do you want me to say? What do you want me to think? What should I do today to serve you? His eyes are looking for them. For those. For churches like that. And in Ezekiel's day, the scriptures tell us God found none. We'll come back to this in our application. Let's continue to chapter 23. Chapter 23 is an illustration, a divine illustration of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. It's an allegoric denunciation of their sin. God introduces two sisters, Ahola and Aholabah. He mentions that Ahola is Samaria in verse 4 and that Jerusalem is Aholabah. Ahola is a 
name that means her tent. Aholabah is a name that means my tent in her. It is interesting here, these names. The meaning of these names is intended to contrast two kingdoms according to their attitude toward the Lord. Samaria was the capital of the northern tribes of Israel. There were ten northern tribes. Ahola, rooted in Samaria, and these ten tribes did not worship in Jerusalem. They did not worship in the temple of God. They had set up their false worship through their first false king. He was king by right, but he did not lead well. His name was Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam set up the golden calves. He set one up in Bethel. He set another up in Dan, one in the north end, one in the south end of the kingdom. And he said, These be thy gods, O Israel, that brought thee out of Egypt. And so they created a, a hybrid religion that worshipped Jehovah God, but worshipped it through idolatry, through a golden calf. Very similar to what Israel tried to do in Moses' day. And so God describes Samaria as a hola, her tent. She's over there. She has her own system, her own religion. Very unfaithful. Jerusalem, God gives the name Aholabah. My tent in her. See, because the temple was still there. Israel still worshipped at the temple of God. It was indeed God's tent, God's tabernacle, God's temple in Jerusalem. And so even their names portrayed the distinctions between these cities that God is portraying as women. And God describes in verses 5 through 10 the unfaithfulness of Samaria. He begins by speaking of this woman, Ahola. He says in verse 5, And Ahola played the harlot when she was mine. And she doted on her lovers, on the Assyrians, her neighbors, which were clothed with blue captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding upon horses. Thus she committed her whoredoms with them, with all of them that were chosen men of, of Assyria, and with all on whom she doted, with all their idols she defiled herself. God specifically mentions in these verses this unfaithfulness in the context of the nation of Assyria. Assyria was a grand nation, a strong nation. We'll see more about Assyria in the weeks to come. History tells us that Israel indeed did have many dealings with the Assyrians. In fact, they had so many dealings with the Assyrians that they were the nation that brought Israel into captivity in 722 B.C. This account is taught in 2 Kings chapter 17. Now the judgment upon Israel was not a secret. Dozens of prophets had been sent to the kingdom to denounce the wickedness of this land. And yet as God describes them, He describes them as unfaithful in every way. But you know, Judah, Jerusalem, Aholibah, didn't learn any better from the example of her sister, Ahola. In verses 11 through 21, we see a description of the unfaithfulness of Jerusalem in the years following the fall of Samaria. Notice verse 11. And when her sister Aholabah saw this, she was more corrupt in her inordinate love than she, that would be her sister, and in her whoredoms more than her sister in her whoredoms. She doted upon the Assyrians, her neighbors, captains and rulers, clothed more gor most gorgeously, 
horsemen riding upon horses, all of them desirable young men. Then I saw that she was defiled, that they took both one way, and that she increased her whoredoms. For when she saw men portrayed upon the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed with vermilion, girded with girdles upon their loins, exceeding in dyed attire upon their heads, all of them princes to look to after the manner of the Babylonians of Chaldea in the land of their nativity. As soon as she saw them with her eyes, she doted upon them and sent messengers unto them in Chaldea. And so she began by doting upon the Assyrians. Jerusalem began by appealing the Assyrians, taking on the Assyrians' idolatry. And then when the Assyrians started to get weaker and Babylon started to rise, they began to dote upon Babylon. And as we've seen in various visions and prophecies in the past, when Babylon was over her, she began to dote upon Egypt. And she tried to persuade Egypt to come and to exercise rule and power in the land. And so Jerusalem, whereas at least Samaria had one nation that she uh, pursued, here Jerusalem is pursuing not one, but three. Here Jerusalem is not just assimilating the gods of one land as if those gods were indeed at least some sort of, there was at least some sort of faithfulness in them, but no, they would take the gods of the Assyrians, they would take the gods of the Babylonians, they would take the gods of the Egyptians, they didn't care. As long as it wasn't God, Jehovah. As long as it wasn't their God. And so whereas Samaria was unfaithful, Jerusalem was more unfaithful. So God tells them that their accountability will be greater for their sin was greater. And their reproach will be greater for their sin was greater. And this is God's message in verses 22 through 35. God tells them that blood is on their hands in verse 37. Excuse me, let me read verses 22 through 35. Therefore, O Aholabah, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will raise up thy lovers against thee, from whom thy mind is alienated, and I will bring them against thee on every side. The Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekod and Shoah and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them, all of them desirable young men, captains and rulers, great lords and renown, all of them riding upon horses, and they shall come against thee with chariots, wagons and wheels, and with an assembly of people which shall set against thee buckler and shield and helmet round about, and I will set judgment before them. And they shall judge thee according to their judgments. And I will set my jealousy against thee. And they shall deal furiously with thee. They shall take away thy nose and thine ears, and thy remnant shall fall by the sword. And they shall take thy sons and thy daughters, and thy residue shall be devoured by the fire. And they shall also strip thee out of thy clothes and take away thy fair jewels. Thus will I make thy lewdness to cease from thee and thy whoredoms brought from the land of Egypt. So shall thou not lift up thy eyes unto them, nor remember Egypt any more. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will deliver thee into the hand of them whom thou hatest, and into the hand of them whom thy mind, from whom thy mind is alienated. And they shall deal with thee hatefully, and shall take away all thy labor, and shall leave thee naked and bare, and the nakedness of thy whoredoms shall be discovered, both thy lewdness and thy whoredoms. Difficult words here. Notice verse 35. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast forgotten me and cast me behind thy back, therefore bear thou also thy lewdness in thy heart. God 
God bookends this message to Israel. He ends the message in chapter 33 very similar to how he began his message in chapter 22. In chapter 22, verse 2, he says to Ezekiel, judge the bloody city. In chapter 23, verse 37, he says that the blood is on their hands. In chapter 22, verse 2, he says, show her her abominations. In chapter 23, verse 36, he says, declare their abominations. And lest the nation think that they have only hurt themselves. Notice what God says in verses 38 and 39. Moreover, this they have done unto me. They have defiled my sanctuary in the same day and have profaned my Sabbaths. For when they had slain their children to their idols, then they came the same day unto my sanctuary to profane it. And lo, thus have they done in the midst of mine house. They mixed the holy and the profane. They sacrificed their children to devils in the morning and came to seek and worship Jehovah in the afternoon. But God tells them He's going to cause their wickedness to cease. Look at verses 45 and 46. And the righteous men, they shall judge them after the manner of adulteresses and after the manner of women that shed blood because they are adulteresses and blood is in their hands. For thus saith the Lord God, I will bring up a company upon them, and I will give them to be removed and spoiled. Let's read to the end of the chapter. And the company shall stone them with stones and dispatch them with their swords. They shall slay their sons and daughters and burn up their houses with fire. Thus will I cause lewdness to cease out of their land, that all women may be taught not to do after your lewdness. And they shall recompense your lewdness upon you, and ye shall bear the sins of your idols, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. God. Sometimes I feel really bad. So many of these messages are very um, harsh. And then I look to my left and I see a giraffe head lying on the ground and I say, you know what, there's still some fun things in this life, right? <laughs> Let's apply this evening. And I'm not going to apply this through hell and fire and brimstone. I want to apply positively as we look at Ahola and Aholaba, these nations that have profaned themselves against the Lord. See, because everything in these two chapters is pointing towards something specific. We'll get there in just a moment. What does it mean, we ask, to stand in the gap? How can you be one that stands in the gap. We've memorized these verses. We're quoting them this week. How do we apply these verses to our hearts? See, there's a great longing in my heart to be that kind of a person who stands in the gap. To be that kind of a person that God would look down and see the wickedness and say, but wait a minute. There's Jamin Wickler. But wait a minute. There's that Preyman family, that Schmidt family, that Germain family. But wait a minute. There's Legacy Baptist Church. There is still a remnant. There's still a group. There's still a pocket. I can still have mercy. But how do we be that? What do we do 
Or what don't we do? I've said already that condemnation of the city bookends this message. Condemnation at the beginning, condemnation at the end. But it's what the middle of the message contains that really matters. God's unsuccessful search for one who would stand in the gap. For one who would not be like the beginning of chapter 22 and the end of chapter 23. For one who would see the difference between the holy and the profane. For one who would recognize the difference between right and wrong and who would stand upon that difference. For one who would not be like the prophets in the land who have sought to make unjust gain at the expense of the religiously motivated. I was talking to a man yesterday at a the pastor's meeting I was at. He had just read a book on the history of theology and he was telling me that in this book it had mentioned that the early church got to a point where there were so many charlatans, so many men who would go from, from city to city calling themselves um, preachers of, of God, simply looking to be housed and to be paid by the churches that they, the early church history seems to bear out, had a policy that if you stayed for more than one day, if you, if you ministered for more than one day as an itinerant preacher in, in a church, and if you asked for any money from that church, they considered you a false teacher. And you know, we're coming very close to a time today where there's so many people out there looking for money, hoping to get you to give your paycheck to them in order that they can show you how to be right with God. That there's going to have to be measures such, such as those put in place for us. But the question is, how do we become different than them? How do we become the gap standards? Well, let me give you a quick summary of how and then we'll look at it in the text. Gap standards fear God enough to identify that which is holy and that which is profane then live the holy and reject the profane. That's a quick summary. Gap standards fear God enough to identify that which is holy and that which is profane then live the holy and reject the profane. Can we say that together this evening? Let's say it together. Gap standers fear God enough to identify that which is holy and that which is profane, then live the holy and reject the profane. That's it. That's what it means to stand in the gap. Look through these two chapters of Scripture. See what it was that God was condemning these, this nation for. See what it was that God was speaking about. See what it was that brought about His wrath. What brought about His wrath was that they didn't identify that which is holy and that which is profane. They didn't put a difference between them and they weren't living the holy, they were living the profane. You want to be one that stands in the gap? You look around at your culture. You look around at your society. You look at your family. You look at your life and you judge them by the Word of God, you find out what the Word of God says is holy and what the Word of God says is not. And then you take that which is holy and you consume it. And you live it. And you take that which is not 
and you reject it. And if you will do that tonight, if you will do that this week, if you will do that this month, if you will do that this year, you will become one who we would call a gap stander. You would be one standing in the gap. Proverbs 9 verse 10 tells us this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. See, a man who fears the Lord will learn what God loves and will learn what God hates. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. An understanding of who God is is the beginning. A knowledge of the holy is indeed what it means to understand something. There's a lot of people under, out there that believe a lot of things and say that they understand a lot of things. But if we don't understand what is holy and what is not, then we don't understand. We talked this morning about divorce and remarriage. You want to know what a big part of the problem is in the church today? They have no knowledge of the holy. The church has no knowledge of the holy. And so there's no difference between the holy and the profane. Marriage issue. No difference between the holy and the profane. Sodomy. No difference between the holy and the profane. Amusements. No difference between the holy and the profane. And so the church has lost its distinction. It's not standing in the gap. Because it has no knowledge of the holy. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. But it's not enough for us to simply identify that which is holy and that which is profane, is it? The difference must be manifest in our lives. God spoke of those who killed their children in the morning only to sacrifice to God in the afternoon. What an abominable thought. But you know what? Do we do that today? I've told you before about a roommate that I had a Nigerian roommate when I was a sophomore in college. It was his first time in the United States. It was his first semester in, the, in, in our school. And he would tell me about the Nigerian church. It's a, called the, it was called the Winner's Church. And they have, uh, it's, a, it's basically a, a big pyramid scheme. It's charismatic and um, the leaders were very wicked men. But they claimed to speak for God. There was a lot of um, signs and wonders and false things. And this roommate of mine told me how things worked there in, in Nigeria at the church. Church was very important to them. And so this is how it worked. Monday through Saturday, you smoked, you drank, you slept around. You did whatever you wanted to do. But you got it done before Saturday night. Because come Saturday night, you had to sanctify yourself for Sunday. Then you'd go and you'd worship God on Sunday. None of that would happen on Sunday, ever. Sunday was God's day. You had to wait till Monday if you wanted to go smoking and drinking and sleeping around and drugs and all that stuff again. Complete distinction, because this was God's day and this was not. These were not. But saw no problem living them both. They lost the knowledge of the holy. They lost the understanding between the profane and the holy. 
they thought that they could sacrifice their children to the devil in the morning and worship God in the evening. Well, we don't do that here, do we? Well, not quite the way Nigeria does it. But how many of us do? How many of us do step right from the holy to the profane and go right from the profane to the holy without even batting an eyelash? How many of us will watch something profane on TV while we have a Bible sitting on our stand right next to us? How many of us will drive to church while there's hatred in our hearts toward our brother or sister in Christ? How many of us step seamlessly from righteousness to unrighteousness without even regarding the contradictions between them? Losing the distinctions between the holy and the profane. And it's, it's an evidence of a lack of the fear of the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord, as the other passages in Proverbs remind us, is to hate evil. To reject it. To refuse it. The one who stands in the gap is the one who knows right and wrong but then takes care to live out the holy while rejecting the profane. Matthew 26, verse 24 tells us this. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve the holy and the profane at the same time. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ at the same time, it doesn't work. You're either here or you're here. James chapter 1 verse 8 warns us against being double-minded. And he says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The idea of having two different minds. The one mind that says, yep, I'm Christ. The other mind that says, yep, I'm, I'm my own. And you see no contradiction between them. Literally, it's like a bipolar nature. It's like half of us is indeed thinking, or schizophrenic we might say, half of us is indeed thinking that we're serving the Lord, while the other half of us is indeed serving our flesh, and somehow we don't see a contradiction between them. A gap stander sees the contradiction. If you want to be the one to stand in the gap, you need to identify the holy and the profane. But then you need to consume yourself with faithfulness to the holy while faithfully rejecting the profane. The gap stander is not the perfect man. But he is the man that refuses the hypocrisy of sectioning off his life into that which is spiritual and that which is secular. He refuses to live one way during the week and another way on Sunday. He refuses to step from the holy to the profane as if he's just transitioning from one place to the next through a door. The gap stander will sin, but he will not seek to justify that sin. The gap stander will not have all the answers to living a godly life, but he will be uncompromising in his life as to the answers he knows. And he will be uncompromising in his faithfulness to seek out the answers from the Word of God that he doesn't know. This is the gap standard. As we close today, can I show you something kind of neat from these two chapters? I've talked to you before about the Hebrew construction of a chiasm. 
chiastic structure was often used in Hebrew poetry. And in Hebrew poetry, what a chiastic structure would do is there would be parallels written into the text that would all point to a common central truth. And so if we were thinking about poetry and you think about A, B, A, B being a rhyming scheme where A is, the A's rhyme and the B's rhyme. So in a poem, if you have A, B, A, B, well then the two lines that are A would rhyme with each other and the two lines that are B would rhyme with each other. Roses are red, violets are blue, and something that rhymes with blue. That would be an A, B, C, B scheme, right? Uh, the roses are red doesn't have to rhyme with the third line, but the second line is going to rhyme with the fourth line. And so if we think about this in a chiastic structure, the Hebrew chiasm would be something like this. A, B, C, B, A. Now, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme in sound. Hebrew poetry rhymes in thought. The thoughts are the same. And they rhyme their thoughts together. And what we see in chapters 22 and 23 is a chiastic structure. An A, B, C, B, A. And so the first part of this chiasm is found in cha uh, verses, chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, and chapters 23, verses 26 through 44. The blood, guilt, and the abomination of these cities. There's parallel thoughts at the very beginning of chapter 22 and the very end of chapter 23. Then we see parallels in chapter 22, verse 12, and chapter 23, verse 35. He tells them that they have forgotten God. We highlighted both of these verses. That they have forgotten God. They are blood guilty. They have committed abominations. And it's pointing to the realities that they have forgotten God. And then we see in verses 22-26 and 23-29 that there's no difference between the holy and the profane. That they make no difference between that which is holy and that which is profane, both in chapter 22-26 and chapter 23-29. So we've got A, B, C, C, B, A right now in this chiastic structure. And what's squeezed right in the middle? It's only mentioned one time. A, B, C, D, C, B, A. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Everything about these two chapters is pointing to the middle, to that which would have solved all three of these problems. What would have solved the blood guilt and the abomination? What would have solved the forgetting of God in the land? What would have solved the problem where these leaders, these religious leaders saw no difference between the holy and the profane? What would have solved it would, it would be if one man would have stood in the gap and then led the others to do the same? Is there a gap stander in here this evening? Is there one who would indeed be willing to identify that which is holy and that which is profane? And then to live the holy and reject the profane and in doing so perhaps lead others to do the same? Is there a gap stander in here this evening that would lead by example? If there would have been one 
man who differentiated between the holy and the profane. If that man had feared the Lord enough to lead by learning God's character, if that man had refrained himself from the blood guilt and the abominations of the land, then perhaps that man would have been the great intercessor for the land so that God would not have destroyed it. You know, we live in a church culture that has blurred the distinctions between the holy and the profane. We live in a church culture that has forgotten much of the character of God. We live in a church culture that is drifting toward the same abominations as the unbelieving world around us. And the question as we close is this. Who will stand in the gap? What about you? What about your family? What about our church? Are we gap standers? Do we know the character of God? Do we know what God loves? Do we know what God hates? Do we live what God loves? Do we reject what God hates? Or are we double-minded, compromisers? One who can worship an idol in the morning and God in the afternoon without even seeing a contradiction or batting an eyelash. You know, what our Christian culture needs today are gap standers. Those who will fit the mold of the man or the woman who will identify that which is holy and that which is profane, then live that which is holy and reject that which is profane. Will you be a gap stander? Children, as you get older, as you learn more, will you determine in your heart to be a gap stander? One who will identify right and wrong and live that which is right. Parents, are you raising your family and your children to be those that stand in the gap? To be those that will identify the holy and the profane and will live the holy and reject the profane. Church, is that what we're doing here? Are we a gap-standing church? A church that will reject that which is profane and that will live that which is holy. That's what God is looking for. Second Chronicles 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward Him. Let's pray.